I'm Dr. Ben Rall. Do you know where the most amazing doctor lives? You may be surprised to learn that it's actually right inside of you. Yet, today's healthcare model is built on a foundation that the greatest doctor instead comes in the form of pills, potions, lotions, even surgery. So listen in, because what if the majority of what you have been told about health and healing is not only wrong, but actually harmful to you? One thing is for sure, when you work with your body and not against it, you'll begin to discover that you are in fact designed to heal. Well, I want to welcome everybody back to another episode of Design to Heal. My name is Jeff McLaughlin. Your host, as always, with me, Dr. Ben, the man, the mystery. His face is in how many post office offices right now, I and I don't even it. know. How's it going? Well, well, good. I, you know, we need to work a professional one because you always say something that I have to kind of takes me off guard. Um, but we get to put somebody else in the hot seat today, True. and so I don't have to deal with that. Mary's more than comfortable being uh, thrown in the hot seat, right? And uh, whether you like it or not. So we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Dr. Mary Holland. Uh, in this world of healthcare freedom and vaccine injury and vaccine awareness and medical choice and the list goes on and on. Um, Dr. Mary has been in this game a long time or in this fight a long time and has written books. And I mean, really at the highest level, she's currently uh, the general counsel for Children's Health Defense, which many of you would, the listeners would be, that's Bobby, you know, Kennedy's, uh, you know, piece of that and things. So Mary, but I know because there is such a breadth of things that you've done and you probably get to do this a lot. Will you give us just your bio best set or kind of the most sure. recent things that you've been doing a little bit about you and then we're going to get into the, the meat and potatoes here. Sure, Ben. Thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So I have to correct you. I'm not a, an, um, I'm not a, a PhD or an MD, but I'm a lawyer by training. And um, before coming to Children's Health Defense, I was on their board um, and for 17 years, I taught at the New York University School of Law. I also taught at Columbia University's Law School. And um, I'm a parent of a vaccine-injured young adult. Um, so I've been in this fight for 20 years. And candidly, I, I helped to create a couple different nonprofits. I've been on many different boards. Um, this is the issue of our lifetimes, I believe. Um, and frankly, I never quite expected that we'd be really where we are, where the whole world is talking about our issue and trying to figure it out right now. So it's both, you know, an extraordinary opportunity and genuinely a pretty dangerous time. You know, Mary, I'm, I'm thinking so today, you know, this episode will probably go live in who knows a week or two. And today I woke up to Johnson and Johnson uh, pauses their vaccine you know, study or however, you know, trials because of these injuries that are happening, right? We saw it recently with AstraZeneca. And uh, uh, for a lot of people, this is the first time they're starting to really see, you know, as far as front page of the newspapers, yeah, in, you know, injuries that happen yeah. and, and that this is real. And they're starting to say, what do you mean yeah. vaccines aren't studied like this? And, and you, yeah. you, you know, you wrote a book, um, HPV, right? About HPV, HPV vaccine on trial. Yeah. And, the, you know, it's a, it's, you know, anybody that's read it knows it's a, it's a, it's a no joke read, right? You need to have your, right. <laughs> you need to know what you're doing to read that. Um, but the, here's what I want, the reason it's so, I think, appropriate for this conversation and then, and then Mary, just take it from here. Um, when we, when you have something like HPV, 
and I'm gonna have not the perfect statistics, but something that most people do just fine with, right? Um, it's a exactly. it's an infection that happens, and the body yep. does a great job with it, and yeah, and the body heals it. But when we begin entering this game of vaccines, what often happens is this illusion of we give the vaccine all of the credit for everybody that doesn't get it or does fine with it. And then we give it artificial credit for, you know, per se, lowering something that was already 9.99, right? So the reason I was thinking about it with HPV and a lot of the other diseases or infections rather is uh, Corona is very similar in, in its recovery rate, right? In the fact that what we're seeing now months later, 99 yep. plus percent of people doing yep. just fine. So one of my concerns with this COVID vaccine to jump into it or this potential COVID vaccine is it's going to get a lot of credit it doesn't deserve, if it yep. ever it gets introduced, because most people just do fine and they'll say, oh, I did fine because I got the Corona vaccine. Right. And, and I don't know. Can you just kind of help, yeah. you know, when you went through the HPV world, because I think you because most people don't know that that vaccine never right. actually was ever proven to prevent one <laughs> single. And you go, how can that be the case? So will you just give yeah. us like that story? Yeah. So thank you for the opportunity, Ben, because I think um, having done with two co-authors, Kim Mac Rosenberg and Eileen Iorio, a deep dive particularly on the human papillomavirus vaccine clinical trials. Um, it taught us a lot um, about what to look for in these clinical trials for COVID. And it taught us a lot about sort of the tricks and traps of, um, you know, rolling out new vaccines. So one of the first things, as you point out, is human papillomavirus, a little bit like coronavirus, it's a very, very common virus. There's like 200 different types of human papillomavirus. It's, it's responsible for warts, but it can, um, you know, it's responsible for uh, genital warts, uh, sort of little um, lesions in uh, the, the throat. Um, and if those are unattended and undiagnosed and the person doesn't change their behavior in a very, 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 very small percentage of people, those um, abnormal growths, be it in the cervix or, you know, elsewhere, can lead to cancer. Mary, is it okay um, to say, though, is it okay to say that most of the time they're just asymptomatic infections? That 99% nobody... of the time. So most of the time particularly, so the testing was done around cervical cancer, Ben. And so in the cervical cancer testing that was done, you know, in, in what we know about cervical cancer is, you know, 99% of the time you'll have a, a healthy woman will have a transient infection. She might have, you know, HPV 11, but it'll cure on its own. And then she might get an HPV 16 and that'll cure on its own. And then she might get an HPV, whatever. And that's perfectly normal, perfectly normal. What can potentially cause problems is if there's a persistent infection of one particular type. And if that's not diagnosed and treated in some way, and it could be treated with, you know, better food, it could be treated by sure. stopping smoking, it could be treated potentially by t scraping that abnormal growth off of the cervix. If that doesn't happen, it's possible in, you know, about 1% of cases that that will actually lead to cancer and to, you know, cervical cancer can kill you. No question. Yeah. COVID can kill you. Yeah. But the reality is that it's a very, very small percentage of people who are affected. And just like with, um, with COVID, for HPV vaccines, who are the people who are at most of risk of getting cervical cancer? It's people who are having a lot of toxic exposures, whether they're smoking or where they have a really bad diet or whether they're in developing countries and they have fires for their food preparation in their home, 
the people who are, and, and it's also if people, women start having children very, very young and have many, many childbirths so that there's inflammation in the cervix. Those are the people who are at most of risk of getting cervical cancer. And basically since the 1950s, when in the developed world, the developed world started doing what are called pap screenings. And basically you go to a gynecologist and as a woman, it's pretty unpleasant, but you go into the gynecologist and they take a little swab of tissue from your cervix, right? And they test it. And if there's anything abnormal, they let you know. Or if they see something abnormal, they scrape it off. Because of that testing, cervical cancer rates in the developed world where people had screening went down 75 to 80%. Wow. So basically- Of that, even that 1% that we wanted to talk about. 1%, right. So cervical cancer is truly the most treatable form of cancer in the world. One gynecologist who is super helpful in our book, um, and, and we write about him, Dr. Sin Hung Lee, he said, you know, if somebody, if a woman who was going to regular medical, had regular medical, if she was diagnosed with cervical cancer, that is a malpractice lawsuit. It's that obvious. It's that bad. But you see, because with HPV, much like with COVID, they started a fear campaign, make the connection. There's a connection between human papilloma virus and cancer. And, you know, this lie that you can prevent your child's cancer by giving them this vaccine. That's a lie. That's completely unproven. But they were, it's very successful, right? Propaganda and fear-mongering work. And HPV vaccines taught us that like big time. And yet, even though it's relatively, you know, it's a blockbuster, Merck is making billions of dollars on Gardasil, GlaxoSmithKline is making billions of dollars on Cervix. Despite that, Ben, you know, in countries like the United States where it's not mandatory, uh, there's ways to get out of it even in the states where it is mandatory, um, it's still like, you know, to get the second dose of it, it's, it's like around 50% and it's lower than that for boys. They've recommended it for boys. So there's a lot of lessons from HPV, um, and we can talk more about Well, Mayor, let me ask you a couple, yeah, a couple quick questions. I think for our listeners that they would want to know, I think one is you bring up this point where, you know, I'm just going to call it like almost the Genesis story, right? Or the origin story of this HPV. And then most people never thought about it really. And then, Absolutely. you know, this fear campaign came along to try to, to put a narrative around it for us. And then as a dad of a child, a, a young girl or my, you know, my daughter's yeah. 13, she's in that age where they would want, of course, yeah. we'll never have her do that. But when that starts to be how you get that story <laughs> and then Mary, are you comfortable talking about what, what the research that I think it came out of Australia fairly recently, right? I've seen, I've heard Bobby talk about it was seeing the cervical, which basically, began to really disprove matter of fact told even oh a, a worse story horrific. yeah so so let me just give yeah. you a little bit more connection so so and and the awful ben not only did they advertise um you know to parents and and make parents feel guilty if they didn't give their kids this life-saving treatment but they advertised directly to children the u.s is one of two countries in the world that permit prescription medications to be advertised to the public u.s and new zealand with a population of four million so that's huge right but, so they but were, mary pause for a second that's a new phenomenon though right that has not always been the well, case 97, no, right been here yeah. since the 90s. Well, no, no, but still, that. But that, when I say that's yeah, a new phenomenon, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah. This went through through the Clinton administration, but what, what that really, what has happened with that, Ben, is it's meant that basically billions of dollars are poured into pharmaceutical advertising. And as Del Bigtree says, basically, you know, your TV 
is it's it's direct from the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. It's advertising for pharma with sort of intermittent <laughs> entertainment. Yeah. It's far, you know, Bobby Kennedy calls it far media. I mean, it's not, you know, you're not getting media that's objective. You are getting pharmaceutical funded media. There's That is where they are making most of their money, right? They are yeah. making through direct to consumer advertisement and they've started and that's that. not even it's to get in get into because uh, i want you to finish about the studies in australia but yeah i want people to also know this because i'm actually looking at an article mary and whether we get a time to talk about it or not but it was a, it was an article in uh, psychology today that just came out you probably saw it it's september 2020 but it says what explains the rise in autism diagnosis and you know where this is going right it was well it's not they don't even mention vaccines in it that because that's right. of course couldn't be possible but the reason i bring it up is a lot lot of people don't realize the journals are bought and paid by pharma as well or yeah, many totally. cases so even so, when you think yeah. you got quote the science you know right. and we think we can stand on that I, right. I mean it's bad news i wish we didn't have to talk about this right it's this stinks oh my gosh, but it's most you know i was just reading before i got on the phone with you so one of the people we talk about in the hpv book who's who's very central to the whole covid thing is a woman named Heidi Larson, who's an American who used to work for UNICEF, but she's now at the London School of Tropical Diseases and Hygiene. And she is sort of the guru of, you know, how do we overcome anti-vaccine sentiment? And um, what did I want to say about her? Oh, yes. What she says is, you know, it's not a misinformation gap. It's a trust gap. And it's like, Heidi, if this is science, you don't trust science. You verify science. Mm. You mm. falsify science. There is no question about trusting science. Science is not a faith. It's not a religion. It's not a dogma. It's supposed to be replicable and it's supposed to be verifiable. So the very way in mm. which they are talking about you know, trust yeah. the science. It's like, well, but then it's not science. Yeah. That's well, but good... but that, but that to your point, I I couldn't agree with you more. And the scientific method it, it more than perfectly validates what you just said right there, doctor. But you know, at the same time, it has become a religion for some people, and it becomes yeah, an easy, it is a religion. Yeah, and it becomes so, an easy so, straw man argument, I think, too, because yeah, then yeah. then when you find that small sect of the population that has made it religious, then throw that argument out there and make it as a sort of brandishment for everybody, and that's not fair either, is it? Yeah. So, so one of the things that we learned from the clinical trials of the HPV vaccine, so it was obvious in the clinical trials before it ever went on the market, and we talk about this at length in the book, um, the evidence that Merck had from their clinical trials was that um, if young women that they were testing this on, if they had a cervical um, infection, a viral infection at the time they got vaccinated, or if they had already cleared that infection and they had antibodies to that viral part, to that virus, that HPV, then they were at higher risk of developing abnormal cervical growth. And the way one of the gynecologists we worked with explained it is like, look, you know, if you're creating sort of, um, if you have an inflammatory condition there and then you're creating antibodies to go and deal with that, you know, you may create sort of hyperinflation, uh, in, inflammation in that region. At any rate, it showed very distinctly that women were up to 44% more likely to develop abnormal growth or cancer if um, they already had uh, antibodies or an active infection. Which, by the both. way, they and those trials don't test for either one of those before they well, jab exactly. them in your arm. 
Well, so exactly. So the point is, so that made it very clear to a number of people is like, holy moly, if we're going to go forward with this vaccine, any girl or woman who's going to get this vaccine should be screened first. But not only is the industry against screening, but even the gynecological associations are against screening. Well, guess what? It's now, they first came on the market in 2006. It's now 2020. There's 14 years of data out there. In every country where there has been high uptake of the HPV vaccine, including Australia, but Ireland, Denmark, the United Kingdom, cervical cancer rates have skyrocketed among young women, skyrocketed. They have, they were going down in every age category until the introduction of HPV, and it's now going up. Now, we think there's a, a number of things that account for that, Ben. Firstly, it is the fact that we know from the clinical trials that this vaccine can uh, exacerbate inflammation and can exacerbate abnormal viral growth. We know that. But in addition, they've changed globally. They've changed the um, the recommendations for cervical screening. They're trying essentially to phase out pap screening and introduce mm. a new type of testing, uh, HPV DNA testing. And so, as a and and you know, when pediatricians and dentists are giving these vaccines, it's not always gynecologists. They're not telling these women you have to come back for screening every year or every other year or every three years. So they're not. It's a false and sense so of security, women, much like yes. maybe a mask would be for many people to exactly. think, since I'm wearing this on my exactly face, right. I got a hedge of protection around me that won't exactly be touched. Right. Exactly you know? right. So a false sense of security. And so, and you know, the fine print does say you still have to go for pap screening. The fine print says this is not, you know, going to protect you from all types of cervical cancer. It doesn't. It protects you from certain very specific strains and maybe potentially like COVID. And COVID is one of 200 coronaviruses. What they've actually done with this vaccine, Ben, is they've gone after the ones that are associated with cancer. We're not even positive that it's causal. That's many people think it is causal, but it's not absolutely certain. And it's but still causal in know. a very, very, very small, small percent, which has well, it. We don't know. Possibly. We, we really actually. I mean, I mean, you know, meaning it's not the ninety-nine. Meaning, like your earlier statement of most people just clear them just fine. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But even in the tiny percentage of women where they they find an association with, you know, HPV strain 18 and the fact that this person developed cancer, even where they find that connection, it's not absolutely 100 percent certain that sure. it's the yeah. virus that was responsible. But let me just make the point that. um those were the ones that they could find, right? And so the, the first version of Gardasil was against two oncogenic strains. Gardasil 9 is against nine cancers, is against seven cancer-causing strains and two against wars. Well, but, you know, there's 200 human papillomaviruses. So what's really going to happen is what we call type replacement, right? They're getting rid of these from the general population because, you know, 50% of people are getting this vaccine. So now more virulent strains mm -hmm. of human papillomaviruses are going to come in to take their place because nature abhors a vacuum. So this is all What crazy. we're seeing the same thing happen in pertussis, yes. you know, yes. uh, you Absolutely. know, and again, so, and then, and then I think about COVID and whether this is a 
you would know more maybe Mary about the science on this side, but I'm just curious what the studies I've seen early on here with, with um, the coronavirus vaccine or COVID vaccine is dependent on these people. If they're getting reintroduced, if they're in an infection or that when the second dose comes and there's, of course we saw the monkeys have a very bad reaction to that, the higher doses. I think you, there's some similarities. Can you speak really briefly though about the HPV? Cause I do want people, not only are there the risks associated with the cancer, sure. yeah. there's a lot of tremendous, uh, negative, you know, impacts. So, so, yeah. so, you know, unfortunately, although a lot of our focus is on COVID, and I want to say one more thing yeah. about that, but let me just say a, a little bit about the, the human papillomavirus vaccine. So it's now being pushed very aggressively on children as young as nine through preteen years, nine boys to and girls. Yeah, boys boys and girls. It's being pushed aggressively around the world as sort of an effort to quote unquote, eradicate cervical cancer. They're now saying, oh, you know, boys should take it because it's going to prevent penile cancer and anal cancer, and it's going to prevent genital warts. And it's now licensed in the United States up to adults age 45. And it's being pushed pretty hard on adults from age 27 to 45 as well. It's not mandated, but for, and in some states it's already mandated, right? So in Virginia and in um, Rhode Island and in the District of Columbia, the human papillomavirus is mandated. There are still medical and religious exemptions in those states, but it's mandated. So as you point out, the first important thing for people to know is it has never been proven to prevent a single case of cervical cancer. Cervical cancer takes 30 or 40 years to develop in the ordinary course. The average age for a woman to develop cervical cancer in the United States is 54. So with, with, with screening, there's no chance that a woman would get cervical cancer and die of it. There, it's just not possible if she were getting adequate screening. So the that's the first point. The second point is the clinical trials were fatally flawed. So they didn't have, they, they said that they used a true saline placebo, that they had a true control for the vaccine group. That's a lie. They didn't have a, a true placebo group. They didn't have a single group in the clinical trials that was true saline. And most of the, the control group, so-called, we call it the faux-cebo or the false placebo group, the vast majority of those people in the so-called placebo group were um, getting everything in the vaccine except for the virus-like genetically modified particles. They were getting the adjuvant, which contains aluminum, which is a known toxin. They were getting polysorbate 80, which we know breaks down the blood-brain barrier. They were getting borate, sodium borate, which we know is a toxin. It's not allowed in foods. They were getting very toxic substances, probably to make the injury rates between the two groups look the same then. And the third important point I want listeners to know is that the injuries from the HPV vaccines are deadly. They are so real and they're so tragic. So you see these totally healthy, wonderful teenagers with their lives ahead of them and they keel over dead. They, they drop dead or they die in their sleep after playing a football game or, you know, they become completely paralyzed or they become absolutely infertile or they, ha they have, um, you know, like they, they can't control their limbs or they develop these horrific autoimmune disorders. And it, it, I just... Yeah. Can't begin to tell you. We cover five stories of we yeah. we, we cover four teenagers' stories who died, um, and one who's you know become essentially demented, like an elderly you know very demented ninety year old, except she's in her twenties. And um, I can't tell you how many young adults I've spoken to, and the stories are just tragic, and they are clearly related to the vaccine. And the the only good news I can tell you 
but it is good news, is, um, you know, after our book was written, in the process of writing the book, we were in touch with an attorney who had brought a case on behalf of a young woman, Jennifer Roby, in the clinical trial, in the um, vaccine injury compensation program. And um, she lost. And it is possible after you lose in the injury compensation program to bring a case in a civil court, federal or state. And this attorney, Saul Adjalat, brought a case in California. And after we wrote the book, it came to the attention of other lawyers, including Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Michael Baum of the firm Baum Headland in California. And so Bobby Kennedy and Baum Headland and other attorneys are now, we've got four active cases against Merck for the fraud of Gardasil vaccines. And I'm very hopeful um, that this is really going to blow open the worldwide fraud of um, Gardasil vaccines. Thank God. And I wish it were a faster process. Lawsuits yeah. take time, but it's it's got that potential to really blow this wide open and to set up a reparations fund for these individuals and to get it off the market. At least that's my hope. Dr. Mary, we're going to take a break there and give the listeners a breather. This is great stuff. We'll come back even stronger after we reset some things you guys are listening to Design to Heal. Here we are back with Design to Heal, have an incredible conversation, very, very stimulating, very provocative for sure. Ben, you've got some questions. I know you're just sort of bursting at yeah. the bit, so jump right back in, man. Let's get rolling. Well, one of the reasons we, we like to bring guests on like like Mary, they get perspective that some of us just aren't able to get because we've got jobs, we've got lives. As a matter of fact, I was talking to somebody earlier, Mary, and somebody said, you know, a lot of these children that are injured and people that have concerns, why don't you see more of them in the streets and a part of this? And one of my responses, because a lot of times they're taking care of their injured family members, right? They're taking care of their children. And then, and then I, we recently, of course, with all this COVID and these mandates, Mary, right? And the lockdown. And sometimes this gets attention when you start getting into freedoms and this slippery slope. And I know as an attorney, of course, you're sensitive to it. And my wife being an attorney, we, we talk about this a lot at home. However, you've had a perspective, more of a global perspective, whether you've liked it or not. It's just the role that you've been kind of thrust into. You were recently, uh, maybe a month or so ago, right, with with others and Bobby and yourself over in Europe, Berlin speci right. specifically. And right. that, that what happened there, without, of course, I think any viewer that's listening, we start talking about Germany and their history. We all know there's a big black spot on what happened there in our history. So Mary, you go to a place like Berlin, Germany, who's where it's a lot more sensitive to the slippery slope of what can happen when we start to lose rights and freedoms and mandated things. Uh, what happened there was pretty unbelievable. And you want to share from your perspective, what yeah. you saw, what you witnessed, what the tone is. And yeah. then part two of that, Mary, is why are we seeming to lag a little or a lot behind here in America regarding maybe our response to some of these mandates and things? What's your perspective sure. on that? So I was really privileged to go with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. over to Berlin um, in August. At the end of August, there was a there was a demonstration there of approximately a million people. The mainstream media said it was twenty thousand. Um, you just have to look at the aerial photos that are on our website, Children's Health Defense, to know that it, it's way not just twenty thousand people. And what was phenomenal about it? It was organized in particular by a group of German attorneys. Um, and these are attorneys who have really 
um, made possible demonstrations in every city around the country. And I, you know, it, it was unbelievably well organized. There were, you know, food distribution sites and, you know, bathroom facilities and television screens and speakers. And, um, you know, initially the city had actually um, banned the demonstration and then they, they protested it in court and they said, yes, there would be social distancing. And there was no basis in which to say that, you know, it was going to spread disease and people wouldn't do whatever. And so it, it, it happened. And I think, as you suggest, um, yeah, and people came from all over Europe. So we at Children's Health Defense just set up um, a European chapter and they were instrumental. They invited us to come over because there are restrictions on, you know, travel and so on. But what was so fantastic is, is people who care about this issue had come from all over Europe. I met with people from Italy and from Ukraine and from Poland and from France and from Belgium and from the Netherlands. And it was such a joyous occasion. And it was so, it was joyous, but it was also about human freedoms. And it was so obvious that this was not the way the mainstream media was portraying it. You know, what the mainstream media says is that this was this far right, um, you know, neo-Nazi group of people. That is just a complete false narrative. It was joyous. It was people from every walk of life. It was people not wearing insignia of any kind of political affiliation. It was really um, a celebration of humanity and a sense of celebration of freedom. And one of the things that was so touching is, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s uncle, John Kennedy, had given a speech in Berlin that's, you know, famous the worldwide. This is, I'm a Berliner, because Berlin was on the front you know, lines in a battle against communism and taking away human freedoms. And um, people were carrying signs that said, mm. you are a Berliner, mm. Robert Kennedy Jr. And, and he said that, and it was just the crowd went wild. Now, there was, you know, a staged alternate um, demonstration at the, at the government building, at the Reichstag. That's the only thing that got publicity. And I don't know if that was in collaboration with the police, but that had absolutely nothing to do with the demonstration of a million people from all over Europe. And the slogans of the, the demonstration were freedom, human rights, peace. I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And as you say, Ben, people in Europe have lived through fascism. They've lived through communism. They've lived through World War I and World War II. And they really know from their own personal history and from their family's history what it means to live under a totalitarian government. Yeah. And even though the German government is very much behind all of the corona lockdown stuff, people are not taking it. And they have been much more active than we have been in the United States to coalesce in every single city once a week, they get they get together to demonstrate against the freedom deprivations that are occurring there. Mary, there's and also there's, a lot of doctors there, too. I know you said it was organized oh by God, lawyers, but I know like, there are great doctors that are leading the way and yeah, using the science, great, of course. There, there are great doctors, great scientists, great lawyers. You know, they're not being reported on adequately in the mainstream press. We met with a very impressive 
uh, Dr. Heiko Schoening, who has been outspoken about, there's a new book by uh, Dr. Bakhti about the coronavirus false alarm, it's called. We also met with German lawyers who are working with us to come up with ways to challenge these lockdowns. Um, so people there, I think, are more ready to understand that this was coordinated. This is a generated crisis. There are not adequate explanations. The balancing, the proportionality simply isn't there and that this is dangerous. I think people in Europe understand that better. So there was a, there was a letter by a group of Belgian doctors. I think the protests in London are getting much bigger. There are protests in the U.S., Ben, and our movement in the U.S. has grown by leaps and bounds. The, the people who signed up at Children's Health Defense to get you know, real information has grown several hundred percentages. Bobby Kennedy's Instagram has grown threefold in the last few months. I mean, people, I was just at a rally in Virginia over the weekend. Before that, I spoke at a health freedom summit a couple weeks ago in North Dakota. I think people are coming on board in the United States. But, you know, thankfully, we have not lived through a war on our territory the way that people in Europe have. And people somehow are more willing to say, oh, well, it's temporary, you know, it's necessary. Oh, this is such a scary disease. And I think people are giving uh, the government like way too much credit for um, truthful information without much verification or, or balancing. So Mary, let me thank you for sharing your perspective there. And you're right. I'm, I'm glad that we, you know, as a, like you opened up with as a mom of a vaccine injured child, you know, you would never want a person to come into this movement through that model, right, of becoming injured. Right. And, and so thank, thankfully, we've, as a nation, you know, haven't gone through what much of Europe has and to be sensitized, but it does create challenges, right? Because you're kind of right. almost like that person sounding the alarm and they think we're yeah. over-exaggerating. Now, that being said, and kind of as maybe we close this this part, here we go into the fall, right? We're heading into, you know, well, lots of things. We're heading into election season and then what often is called the flu season right? Or this, this time of year. And there's been a lot of talk about flu vaccine, you know, and, and this twindemic, I've heard the term used and, oh my gosh, we're going to be in so much trouble because of the second wave and all these terms that are thrown around. However, there's a very interesting um, thing I think our listeners need to know or, or he, about uh, the, the flu vaccine and COVID, right? And the COVID and right. or coronavirus, rather, excuse me, right. coronavirus infections. Can you right. touch briefly on that from a science, you know, science law standpoint? Yeah, and sure. just your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what we're seeing right now, Ben, is around the country, um, employers and states and um, universities in particular are imposing flu mandates. They're giving people a deadline of November 1, or, you know, December 31, and they're threatening to fire people and to discontinue student services, uh, discontinue students' education if they don't get these flu vaccines. Children's Health Defense, where I'm general counsel, we are suing the University of California system right now, where the University of California is trying to force its 510,000 faculty, staff, and students flu vaccine before November 1. And then without informing their people, in fact, because we at the moment don't have a hearing date before November 12th, they've actually extended that to November 12th, but they haven't informed people of that. They're really, so there's many different issues here. 
But I think the most important one that you're alluding to is that there's not a lot of science about what the interaction is between a flu vaccine and coronavirus. However, there is there are five studies that we point to that you can find on our website, Children's Health Defense, that suggest that people who have recently had flu vaccines are more susceptible to COVID-19 and the case of COVID-19 that they have may be more severe because they've had a flu vaccine. And this makes sense because there is a very well-known phenomenon in science called viral interference. If you basically program your immune system to fight COVID or rather to fight the flu, but then your immune system is confronted with coronavirus, you're immune system may not be able to mount a very effective response because it's just been programmed to fight flu. And this is a pretty well-known phenomenon. But the other thing that we've made, the argument we've made with California is we don't know if there's going to be a second wave of coronavirus. That's pure speculation. We don't know if there's going to be new hospitalizations and fatalities because of COVID. So this is all speculative. And there's really no basis for a mandate for flu in a coronavirus pandemic. That is just completely unprecedented. And we argue that because it is unprecedented, because they don't have any science that shows that it is helpful to get a flu vaccine in the context of a coronavirus outbreak, that it's a clinical trial. And what we know from the Nuremberg Code and what we know from case law for over 100 years in the United States is you have to have consent of a patient to a medical intervention. A flu vaccine is a serious medical intervention. People can die from a flu vaccine. People can be paralyzed from the vaccine. The biggest uh, damages that have been paid out of the vaccine injury compensation program in the United States is for injuries from the flu vaccine. So we're arguing that what the university is imposing on people is a violation of um, ethics and of law related to clinical trials. Let me ask you this kind of maybe last question, Mary. Uh, you know, as we look through all this, and I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, and I know you're not here to give medical advice, right? So I'm not going to ask, yeah. ask us what to do. But from a, from a freedom standpoint, right? We had Kevin Barry on before, you know, we talked through some of this. But through what you are seeing, what is a, a, a reason, I don't even, but let's just say it like this, a reasonable solution that we're, that we're going for? Is it freedom of choice that we should have health freedom uh, when it comes to what, any I mean, vaccine? Any, yeah. It, there's no excuse, really. And in my opinion, yeah. there is no legitimate reason to treat vaccines any differently than drugs. You know, I mean, if you want to take one, take it or whatever. Yeah. yeah if you want I mean, that's really where the human rights goes. It really is. You know, not only do we have the Nuremberg Code that says the uh, consent of the individual is absolutely essential, but the Nuremberg Code has been extended to treatment. And so there's a UNESCO Declaration on Human Rights and Bioethics. And I researched that when I was, you know, on the faculty uh, at a law school. And there is no carve out for vaccines. There is no carve out. And, you know, it would be a possibly been from a legal you, it would be a different question if this was smallpox. Smallpox apparently killed 30% of people who became infected, right? It would be different, arguably, as a legal matter if this was bubonic plague. I think, you know, that's still a question. But this is not that. Yeah. Coronavirus is killing 0.13% of people who get it. That's even, you know, we don't even know if that's exactly right. 0.13. So over 
So 98 plus percent of people who get this disease survive it. I mean, is that a basis to give away all our freedoms and turn our world upside down? In my opinion, that's irrational. And it shows that there hasn't been any real proportionality analysis. There hasn't been any real democratic intervention in these lockdown decisions worldwide. They were put in place as executive orders and basically they haven't been evaluated in a democratic process. And that's what I think we as lawyers are really speaking out about is like, look, there needs to be, we need to be respecting human rights and we need to bring the democratic element into this. So do we, you know, as for a, a listener that's that's hearing this, you know, they're the mom and dad, they're, you know, we're just, you know, doing our little thing, getting through the day. Do you tell them, it's, is it, you know, so get to CHD and sign up for the newsletter so you can get good up-to-date information. If there's rallies in your areas, if there's businesses to support that are, you know, following more of, of you know, rights and freedom support. What do you kind of, you have a couple things to just encourage a listener sure, what sure. to do? Yeah, absolutely. I, I highly recommend that people join um, you know, if you sign up on our webpage, um, you'll get a free newsletter. Um, you'll get you'll get a lot of really good information. Um, I think it is really valuable for people to join local health freedom organization. There's a lot of different ones. Every state has its own group, but find it. You'll find it, you know, on Facebook. You'll find out where it is. Children's Health Defense has some chapters. We're working with other groups that have chapters. Sign up for your local health freedom group because we need you. Um, And then beyond that, you know, just um, talk to your friends and family. I I mean, I actually was with Andy Wakefield on Saturday. I also said, what can people do? Have a watch party. Have a Zoom party to watch Andy Wakefield's film, you know, the 1986 act. Watch uh, Dell Big Trees the High Wire once a week to get informed. Yeah. Share that source of information with other people. I mean, we do as a, we in this country, it's going to be very threatening, Ben. I mean, um, you know, COVID vaccine mandates are coming down the pike. It's going to be, you know, the sort of travel restrictions are well underway. And we're going to need an informed, uh, sort of vibrant public to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to give up our way of life for uh, an, a, an infection that is serious in a tiny fraction of people. If those people feel truly threatened by this, you know, God bless them. Let them stay at home. Let them not go out. Let them get special provisions from the state to have food delivered. But for everybody else, let's just go on and get about our business, just like Sweden has done. And I think I always, and it's why I appreciate, you know, guests like you and like you said, Bobby and, and Dell and Andy and everybody else in the movement is I want people to know they're not crazy for asking questions. It doesn't make you a, a, an un-Amer- you know, un-American or, or inhuman to ask intelligent questions and, and demand answers, right? And before exactly. I'm going to give up those rights, I need to have some really good information, not an experiment. And so, exactly. you know, thank you for not only writing the books, you know, and, and for traveling the world. And I, I, I won't even begin to imagine all the things that's affected in your personal lifestyle and, and then taking on uh, Children's Health Defense Legal Counsel. That, you know, good good on you for, for just keeping uh, driving, seeing yourself how much you can put on your plate at one time. But uh, <laughs> we really have been thankful. And of course, uh, you have a couple books that you've wrote. 
the one that really touched me was the HPV vaccine. If you're a parent out there and you're getting pressured to do that, I would want most people to understand there still is exemptions, uh, exceptions, exemptions in most states. So before you get uh, coerced into that, and it is coercion, before you get coerced into that, you need to get yourself educated. You owe it to yourself and your child, you know, and just to do that. But then just as an American. So thank you, Mary, for taking the time with us today. God bless all the work that you guys are doing. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe. To learn more about Dr. Ben's work, visit AchieveWellness.clinic.